at the table. If you do would like, if you, you would like to give, you can either give to the church and put a memo for uh, Wings of the Way, or you could just do that directly back there. But I highly, highly encourage you to look at the website, go through the blog. Um, it's uh, very informative, and it's it's really um, an awesome opportunity to really get boots on the ground, literally, uh, and rescue these people. So. Hopefully, we could get involved with that. And right now, we are going to transition to our topic of faith uh, in the book of Hebrews. And we are in uh, Hebrews 11. We're crawling through as usual. And we are going to take a whopping one verse today. And uh, we are going to dig in. And we're going to start talking about one of the big guys in the Bible. And that is Moses. So our scripture is Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Moses being hidden for three months, again, a very sort of tip of the iceberg sort of scripture. Again, we're dealing with the people that were that oozed and smelt of the Old Testament. They knew all of these stories. So just with one little verse, one little passage here that the writer of Hebrews gives out, the whole entire history of the, of the people of Israel would rush forward into their mind and they knew exactly what he was trying to say. Now, of course, we don't necessarily have that because we aren't immersed in that Hebrew culture like they were at the time. But anybody knows that the tremendous backdrop to the entire Bible, especially that of the New Testament, is this story of Moses and Exodus and the rescue that we're going to um, flesh out and talk about as we go through these verses. So I want to ask, start with a question. Do the small, tiny things that we do for God, or for that matter, that we do in life, do they have an impact? Now, I know if for those of us that have ever worked for a company, um, especially in the sales world, we know that the small, tiny, little things that people do go a long way. They have a, a big impact because the small, tiny things, especially in the business world, usually are very indicative of what the big things will turn out like. As Jesus said, if somebody is faithful in a very little thing, he will also be faithful in that which is much. But if he is unrighteous in a very little thing, he will be unrighteous also in much. I love what Ben Franklin said. This doesn't necessarily rhyme the way I would like it to, but he says, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The concept here is that the small, tiny, little things that someone can do are foundational. And if someone does them consistently and faithfully, they will set a productive pattern that reaches into multiple areas of their life. Now, I believe that one of the foundational principles the writer of Hebrews has been showing us through the examples of these supposed Old Testament giants is that the steps of faith from normal, average people, or we would just call the regular Joe, matter to God just as much 
as the seemingly gigantic big steps of faith that people would take. We see this with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, his brothers. We saw all this over the past few weeks. These were just average people taking small steps of faith, stepping out for God, waiting on God, trusting in God's word. And as we look in hindsight, these weren't really small and significant people, were they? They turned out to be, because of how God used them and because of their faith, very impactful people in the kingdom of God. They all, as a matter of fact, pointed to the ultimate object of their faith, which is Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of being that great deliverer that all of this chapter has been pointing to, that promised land coming through the promised seed, of that, which is that promised Messiah, and of course leading to that promised kingdom. And now we come in verse 23 to this you know, giant icon of the Old Testament. Moses is actually mentioned 852 times in 787 verses in the Bible. He's third from the top. David being the second most mentioned with 971, and Jesus being the first with 1,281 mentions. Now Moses may be a giant figure in Judaism. Of course, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, or the five books of Moses, or the book of the law. He also wrote Psalm 90. He was from the priestly tribe of Levi. But when you take a look at the man's life, Was he really that supernatural giant that we often look at him to be? Or was he just an average person that God developed and set into motion to make an eternal impact of the kingdom? When we think of Moses, we often think big, and rightly so. He was a big vehicle that God used. Right? He he spoke to God. He saw the wonders that God performed through him. In Egypt, he met God on Mount Sinai. He, he spoke with God. He received the law. He seemed like a real powerhouse. James 5.17 gives us a, an interesting look at these, not just Moses, but really he uses Elijah, but you could apply it to Moses and everyone else. He says that Elijah was a man with a like nature of ours. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Just a normal guy, knowing how to do just a simple thing, pray and trust the Lord. And God answered and used him in a powerful way. Why does that often, why does James remind us of this? Because we often think, again, of the prophets of old having this supernatural aspect to their nature. They must have been born with something different. They must have had this really amazing faith. They They must have been these really good people. They just had something that I would never have. But that's not true. They were average people, but with a unique calling from God. Moses, not unlike Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, and all the other prophets, and everyone else, was just a normal dude. He was used by God. But in order to be used by God, He also was like all of us in that we have to express our faith in action, deliberate action. There's only one faith, as we talked about before, and all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have it. 
There's one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. There's no such thing as superheroes. There's no such thing as super faith, except in Pentecostalism, of course. Kidding. Just there, there, there's, no, there's no super faith, but there is, there are, I should say, super steps of faith, but they're not necessarily big, giant steps. Actually, when we look in hindsight, we'll say, wow. But when we're actually in the moment, in the present reality, they may seem very small and insignificant. One individual has various impacts of their faith, but God is the one who initiates it. God is the one to determine how that faith is going to be used. Or I should say, how that faith is going to be seen Because we don't really see the impact of that little conversation we may have out on the street or a comment that we may make to someone that we know, someone in our family, or even someone that we don't know in the grocery store. It could change the whole entire course of humanity, theoretically. So we need to understand that there is no little small step. One individual, when he or she expresses their faith in God, has just as much potential impact as any other, any other giants of the faith, to move the kingdom forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's up to God, not us. Our job is to have faith in the right person. That object of our faith must be Christ, expressed in action, and the potential is unlimited. Now, we covered it months ago in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, that Moses was just a simple servant. It says here that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. There's a backstory here. Moses was a man who had a faith, obviously, and he executed it, but he was a servant. He had the same faith as we have. His faith was expressed by God, but differently than we may express our faith. God used his tiny little steps for something big. And this passage today gives us a glimpse of really what, what we like to call in, in, in film when, when, you, when you first see a character, you don't get all of his backstory right away. But if the writer's good, he's going to drip it into the story so you understand who this person was yesterday. Who was he before you turned on that movie or that show? And once you understand who he was, it gives a lot more depth and meaning to the character. We actually begin to like the character even more. Every person in this room has a backstory. We're all the tip of the iceberg. We're all showing the tip of the iceberg. Circumstances that caused us to get where we are right now in our current condition. And we think of Moses, we immediately think of him warning Pharaoh, him parting the Red Sea, getting the Ten Commandments. Rarely do we look at page one, which is the foundation or the catalyst of Moses' faith and existence. Last week we covered Joseph's last dying words. It occurred at the very end of the book of Genesis. And then we turn to Exodus chapter one, and we find that after Joseph died, a new Pharaoh raises, is risen up who hated the Jewish people. They were growing in number. 
due to the fear of them turning on the Egyptians or joining their enemies in an attack, Pharaoh gave an order to kill every male child that was born to the Hebrews. And the worst was he was going to use the Hebrew midwives to do it. Exodus 1, 15 to 17. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the midwives, one who was named Shiprah and the other who was named Puah. And he said, when are you, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them on the, upon the, birth, on the birth stool, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a girl, let her live. But if it's a son, put him to death. And in verse 17, it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but let the males live. So verse 20 says, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. So they were actually providing for God's household to be built and God rewarded their insignificant small step that we look at here as an insignificant and he rewarded them the same by establishing households. So before Moses was even born, he was almost put to death. But the fear of God and the faith by these apparently insignificant midwives, that was the catalyst to save his life. Little did they know that they were taking an action step that would attribute to the preservation of the seed of the people of God. The seed of the kingdom of God, ultimately. That it would give the person that God raised up to save them from the bondage that they were in. Lesson number one. The seemingly most insignificant person who expresses their faith in the seemingly most insignificant way or takes a stand for God in faith can send ripples through eternity for God and will be looked on and be blessed by God. So all of us here, we think, well, when is God going to use me for something big? He is using you for something big. Right where you're at right now. But because we are tend and we're conditioned to, we're conditioned by the world, right? We look at success and we look at numbers. How many people am I affecting? I can't just, I can't just be called to, you know, pastor a church of 60. It's got to be 6,000 or else I'm a failure. Or if I don't go out and kill it and make seven figures, then I'm really not a success by making only five or whatever the case may be. It's not with God at all. Of course, saving a life like the midwives were doing wasn't insignificant, but most people's eyes, in most people's eyes, the midwives were. It was a very lowly job. Little did they know that their faith would inspire a Levite couple to do the very same thing with their child. This led to Moses' parents in our passage today. They were fueled to express their faith. It comes right after that in the passage when Moses was born. Certainly either his mother was involved with the Hebrew midwives, probably had a midwife herself, or even could have been one herself. But in any case, when she gave birth, the verse says here in Exodus 2.2, 2, 
The woman, his mother, conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, this doesn't mean that if Moses was an average-looking or even ugly baby, that they would have said, no, let's cast him into the Nile. That's not what the word beautiful here means. It's not actually translated great in this version, but it's best explained by Scripture interpreting Scripture. And we see in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, Stephen as he was preaching to the Jews in his very popular and powerful sermon, which caused him to be rocked to sleep and to be the very first martyr of the Christian faith, he started out by just rehearsing the whole history of Israel. And they were like, okay, okay, okay. And then he started talking about Moses and how Moses was the deliverer, but how they didn't listen to Moses then, and they're not listening to God again now. And they, he called them a stiff-necked people, and he, he said that they had a hard heart, and then they picked up stones, and they stoned him when he mentioned Jesus Christ. But in that whole sermon, in verse 20 of Acts chapter 7, he says, it was at this time that Moses was born, and he gives a good commentary on it, and, said, and it says that he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. There was something about Moses that God illuminated for his parents. I don't think it was beautiful physically. It was something that they saw that said God's hand is on this child. He's made for something special. They had already probably hid the pregnancy. So immediately when Moses was born, they saw God's hand on his, his, hand on his life, and they took the step of faith, and they hid Moses for three months. After that, it got difficult. And I could see hiding a, a birth for a week or even a pregnancy is one thing. Maybe even a month is another. But then you get a three-month-old, things start to get a little difficult. The baby gets real fickle. And it's hard to cover that, those screams and, and those, the crying and all those other things that are come along with a three-month-old baby. But having done this, when Pharaoh then ordered not only the killing of the newborns, but he then said after that, when he saw that the, the midwives weren't doing it, he said, if the, if, the, if the Hebrew women do give birth, then just throw them into the Nile and kill them. So the parents could not take a risk any longer. They knew if he was found, he would be killed. So they put him in a wicker basket, as we read before, they covered it with tar and pitch, and they set it among the reeds in the bank of the Nile. And this brings us to, I guess, the second lesson here. Regardless of who you are, faith in God often requires to place in his hands what's most important to you. Put it squarely in his hands and trust him for the outcome. There's no better example than with our own children or even in our own childhood. Say so you have that special child, you see God's hand in their life. They're a tool for the kingdom of God. But maybe from the moment of conception, you were told the baby was high risk. The, do the doctors, they warned you. But you kept your faith in God's word. Now, when I say warned you, I, I say this from experience. My wife and I, we started having children later in our marriage. In every pregnancy, we were warned, this probably isn't going to work. The ultrasound shows the neck too big, the head too small, the head too big. The limb's too short. The renal gland is off here. It's off there. 
And after the third one, we were like, yeah, whatever. My wife was like, I don't care if there's an arm sticking out of his head in the ultrasound. We're having the baby. So forget about this abortion thing. You know? Amen. Yeah, amen. And so it, it, it's, there comes a time where you have to trust your child. You have to it, commit your child unto the Lord when it seems impossible. I have to admit, it's very scary during those times. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we're, we're all fine and we have this strong faith. No, it was like we worried. You know, what's going to happen? You know, and so when we place what's most important to us squarely in the hands of God, there's a peace that comes along with that if it's done in faith. People come to me all the time worrying that they're getting too old. They, they want to have kids now. I'm 25. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, and I'm just, you know, you have plenty of time. Believe God, trust him, let it go, he will lead you. Now, Moses' parents did just that. They made a choice to have faith in God, they had no other viable option, and they trusted God's faithfulness, so they put this wicker basket into, they sent it off into the Nile, and Moses, the deliverer of, the, of Israel, the man who would do all those powerful things and write the five books and do all that stuff, speak face to face with God, he sits helpless on the Nile River. He was completely in the hands of God at this point. But then comes Moses' sister, Miriam. Now, she stood at a distance. Some of the, uh, uh, in Judaism, they say that she was probably about seven years older than Moses. She was probably watching, praying, worrying, you know, she probably saw for three months her little brother, and now they're, they don't know what to do. They were probably cornered. They put the baby in the basket. And what's going to happen? God, what are you doing? What's going on? You told me to trust you. You told me to put this in your hands. And then all of a sudden, who comes walking down to the river? Pharaoh's daughter. She's there to take a bath, but she's there with all of her handmaids, and she notices the basket. So she sent for someone to go get it. Her maidens brought it over. And what do you know? Moses is in there crying. Then the sister, Miriam, comes forward. She says to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, how about I go and get a nurse from one of the Hebrew women? Sounds like a good idea. Miriam goes and gets her mother, the mother of Moses. And boom, God comes through. And a picture of what he would do for the entire nation. Bring that desperate child, child Israel, God's first, firstborn, back to their parent, which of course is the Lord. Moses is reunited with his mother. Pharaoh's daughter even says, I'll pay you wages. Take this child and nurse him for me. So God works it all around. He, he sets up this, these midwives taking these little insignificant steps of faith with, from this insignificant group of people, inspiring his parents to, you know what, let's trust the Lord. We're not going to put him in the Nile necessarily. We're going to put him in, but not exactly like Pharaoh wanted. But we have no choice. We've hit him for three months. Miriam's, uh, the Moses' sister, she goes and takes that step of faith and goes and watches and steps out and approaches Pharaoh's daughter. The lowest going to the highest. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go get me a nurse. And what do you know? Moses is back safely with his parents in a very short amount of time. Of course, we have to see the underlying principle here. 
God works in ways where he tests first. We saw this with Abraham. I'm going to cause you to miraculously, biologically have a child when you're 100 and your wife is 90. And then I want you to sacrifice that child and God delivers them. And he does the same pattern here with Moses. But notice they this isn't all, it's not all supernatural. It's not all here. God uses human vessels and their actions of faith to bring about the outcome. They showed God that they had faith in entrusting what was most important to them to him in faith. Now, all of this should ring a bell about some other faithful parents. If you're familiar with the story of our Lord Jesus and his birth, he too was born to a very insignificant person on the surface, but someone who had great faith. Mary was around 15 or 16 years old. She's visited by the angel Gabriel. She's already betrothed to Joseph. And Gabriel tells her, you are going to be, you're going to have a child who's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this is a supernatural thing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was told anything related to that from a male version, I would have asked a ton of questions, right? Like John's dad did. How am I supposed to know? And then he was muted, right? (laughs) Yeah, you want to really know? Okay, you're not going to talk until the kid's born. That would be me. But Mary wasn't like that at all. When she heard what the angel said, Mary expressed her faith in the word of the Lord. It says in Luke 138, she said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Simple, simple, but small, but simple, but big and huge impact. Joseph too was visited in the dream. Because again, he was like, I need to send her away. This, is, this can't be true. She must have did something bad. But then God visits Joseph in the dream and says, no, take Mary as your wife. It's all true. Everything that you heard is true. And Joseph said, all right, I'm going to do it. He took Mary as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name, as instructed, Jesus Now, like Moses, after this, the enemy plotted to destroy that godly seed and throw the coming of the Messiah and and all of Israel's salvation and redemption off course. What did Herod do? Kill every male child two years old and under. And Jesus and his parents were these insignificant people carrying the Messiah not only in their tummy, and then after he gives birth, running around, going to Egypt, waiting for Pharaoh to die. And God takes their faith and uses it in a powerful way. Why? Because they took what was most important to them, they placed it in the hands of God in faith. Were they super theologians? No. Were they sons and daughters of the popular high-profile priests down at the scriptorium? No. They didn't have any supernatural ability. They were just two regular people trusting and relying on God's word as their foundation. God wants nothing more and nothing less from you or I. He wants you to have faith, to be faithful, and to know and trust his faithfulness to you. Have faith in his power. Have faith in the plan that he has for your life. Have faith where you're at right now in your life. 
And that's not an easy thing to do. Don't wait for the big faith invitation. The big fireworks display. The blazing fire uh, coming, you know, like John describes in Revelation, the white wool, the blazing eyes of fire and the feet of bronze and the big shining light. That's not probably going to happen. God's not going to call you maybe to write the next few books of the Bible. I don't think he's ever going to do that again. But you can do smaller things for the Lord. You can start to listen to what the word says. And I'm not saying that we're, we're, doing, we're not doing that wholesale, but we may say, well, I'm not going to write the five books of the Bible. True, but we could share with that person that sits across from us at work. Or we can share with that person that God brings to you that those God-ordained moments, we've all had them. You know, we've all missed them too sometimes, but that's okay. God wants us to take those little steps of faith. You may not be a midwife in the midst of Egypt getting an opportunity to stand for God and save the lives of children, but you can get involved with mothers who have an unwanted pregnancy. You could go today after church down to the Walk for Life, which we've been promoting. And you could take a stand that way. You could help support pregnancy centers. You could help women that are considering aborting their child. You could do so many things to help save lives. You can go and talk to that person that's dying. I don't know what it is. God does. We'll open that door. The small things are not insignificant. <clears throat> the real bottom line to this whole thing is that you are uniquely created by God for a specific, unique purpose. If you look around here at each one of you and myself, we are completely different. There's not one single person here that looks alike or the same. We're all different DNA. We all have different imprints. And just as much as we're different physically down to the very nature and cellular uh, level of our being, that's how different the call and the, and the opportunity that God is going to give you. Now, we may, you say, well, no, Pat, we're, we're all called to preach the gospel. Yeah, but it's so different and unique to you. I can't reach the people you can. You can't maybe reach the certain individuals that maybe I can. It's all different. Every single one of us. There have been 38 billion people to ever have walked the earth. Now, this is a young creationist worldview. If you talk about an old earth, they say it's 137 billion. But I'm a more young earth creationist. And not, ever, not even two of them are the same. Think about that. 38 billion people. You're made different. You're made unique. You're made for a purpose in the kingdom of God. What is that? That's where you are at right now. So we have to stop looking for the big and pay attention to where we are now. Be faithful to God in Christ. As a parent, as a brother, sister, friend, co-worker, individual, and everything in between. Sooner than you think, though, this is the cool thing that happens. When you are, like Jesus said, faithful in those little things, when you least expect it, the whole entire backstory and backdrop starts to blossom. And you start to see that God's seed in his hand was in this the whole entire time. That period of time where you thought it was insignificant, you were despising the day of small things, right? And then all of a sudden you look and then God brings an opportunity and everything rushes forward. And wow, this God was there the whole time. The cool thing is, is if we know this now, we don't let these little opportunities go by. You'll see eventually that God will ripple effect. You're, when we get to 
this next age, when we're in the resurrection, we are going to see, because Paul tells this in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Corinthians 6, and then he brought, brings it home in 1 Corinthians 15, that what we do in the body is got big repercussions in the resurrection. And obviously, if you reject Jesus Christ in the body, it's going to be a big repercussion in the resurrection. Because Jesus is the only way. He is the only way to salvation. He's the only way to renewal. He's the only way that you could have forgiveness of sins. There's no other way to get your sins forgiven. If you don't have Christ, the repercussions in the resurrection are going to be separation from God, hell, judgment, and all the, the, the things the Bible talks about for those that are not of Christ. But for those of us that are of Christ, there's amazing repercussions in the resurrection. Everything you do, all the labor that you're putting in forth right here and right now is going to be used towards that resurrection, resurrection period of time. Your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I can't tell you and promise you that by following Christ where he has you right now is going to be glamorous, especially to the world. I can't promise that it's going to be all fun and games and that there won't be times where you're questioning everything. You know, sometimes I walk around all day. I'm just, it feels like every single thing is falling apart every single second, right? From a ministry perspective, from a calling perspective. And then eventually I see that you weren't just, you weren't having faith. You were waiting for something that you were waiting God to do something that he's called you to do. And that's what it comes down to, is having faith in the Lord. Be ready for everything, but don't expect anything even more than the example of Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, for Christ's example. We thank you, God, that you have humbled yourself so much to even look upon us as humans. And then to become one, fully God, fully man, You've humbled yourself, Lord, to save us. And Lord, we know that Jesus, he wasn't looked upon when he was on earth. Um, he didn't have a, a great appearance, apparently, as you say, Lord, or something about him that would cause us to want to follow him physically. But Lord, what he did as he was faithful to you causes us to have and to desire that same thing, the example that he set forth for us to be faithful to him as he was faithful to you. Help us do that in even the small things or the seemingly insignificant small things, Lord. We know that in your plan, they have eternal impact. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to have the Lord's Supper now. And, you know, I was reading in Matthew 26, 20 to 23, it says that when it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12 disciples. And while they were eating this, this, the Lord's Supper, this Passover celebration, the night Jesus was going to go in front of his criminal court, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? Am I the one? And he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will, betr will betray me. In other translations, in other passages, it talks about eating the bread with Christ, the sop of bread. The one that ate with him was his betrayal, was he, his betrayer. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, because I believe 
not obviously to the extent of betraying Christ, but I believe our heart has to be right when we come to this table. Because it is something more than just a remembering ritual. Excuse me, Jesus said, or Paul says, that if people, well, it's an attack in the name of Jesus. Go, you on. I'm not having good times with bugs today. I had a big, giant hornet come in my house at 6 in the morning. It was as big as my thumb. I hit him. I couldn't find him. And then he came and attacked me a half hour later. I'm, I'm serious. More about that later. But I say that ironically now as I'm talking about this most important meal. But we have to understand that Paul said that, you know, if we eat or drink the Lord's Supper with the wrong heart, we bring judgment upon ourselves. And so what does that tell me? That we should fear and all that? No, we should be careful to make sure we have the right heart. But what it really tells me is that there's something very spiritual about what we're doing. And there's been a lot of views on it right now, but I just tend to stay in that view that it's important and that it's spiritual and that we have to have the right heart. And so I would encourage you to do that right now as we prepare to take this, uh, take this meal, the bread and the wine. It's symbolic of Jesus' death the bruising of his body for our sins and the blood to cover our sins for all eternity, the atonement. And of course, it reflects back to that Passover meal where the Israel, the people of Israel were delivered from bondage. And that day that they were delivered, that night that they were delivered, Pharaoh and all of Egypt, all of the firstborn were killed. And it's a big story behind that. God had warned them and warned them. Let my firstborn, you've taken my firstborn, and I'm going to do that. And so he tells the people of Israel, kill that Passover lamb. And I want you to eat it in haste. And I want you to take the blood and put it over the doorpost. And that when the angel of death comes, he's going to pass over the people of God. And that's ultimately what this meal is symbolic of. But it's even more. It's not only that Christ has passed over our sins with his blood covering us, and his, when he comes in judgment, he will pass over those that are covered in the blood of Christ. But it's also spiritual nourishment for us to move forward and build toward the kingdom that he launched. So as we do this, consider these things. Cleanse your heart before the Lord. Cleanse your conscience. If for some reason you don't want to partake, you just you don't have to. Or you're not going to be judged by that at all. But if you do partake, I encourage you to do it in the right spirit with the right heart. So with that said, I'd like to ask Hubert, would you come up and help me? To, uh, we'll, we'll pass out the elements, hold on to them. We'll come back up, we'll read a passage, and we'll partake together.
I did forget to mention that these are gluten-free, if anyone has that sort of issue. Um, did anybody pass because they didn't know they were gluten-free? If you did, okay, good. Um, so this is uh, Matthew 26 to 29. It says, as they were eating, um, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And then he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Then he says, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. So, Father, I pray right now that you would examine our hearts, Lord, and that we right now, we just give you Lord, all of our sins, we give you all of our trust, we commit all of our ways to you, and we thank you, Lord, for the cross, for this public proclamation of what you've done, not only at the cross, but the punishment that you've took, that your body took for us, and the spilling of your blood that covers the sins of many. We just praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's partake of both together right now.
have some quick announcements and then we'll have the benediction. Um, we have a plate in the back. We don't pass a plate, but we do have a plate in the back for those of you that want to give back to the Lord through your tithes and offerings. If you're visiting, it's obviously not intended for you, but for those who consider uh, faith a uh, their regular place of worship. We have our regular Tuesday and Wednesday night festivities. Tuesday is our house of prayer. We encourage you to join that online. It's on Zoom. You can get that link on our website or our weekly update. We have our Bible study on Wednesday with a sermon question and answer, and we go a little deeper into the sermon. That's from 7 to 8 here. And we are starting our men's and women's Bible study back up. I have two dates for you. The first one is October 12th. That's a Thursday evening from 7 to 8.15. And the men are going to be going through the letter uh, to the Philippians, and the women are going to go through the letter of James. So I highly encourage you guys to block off October 12th and also October 26th, which is the, it's every other Thursday is what we're aiming for. But I only got confirmation on 12th and 26th, but we will continue to uh, populate those dates and let you know about it. Also, I want to encourage you to come to our Sunday Bible study. We're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I know you hear catechism and people say, oh, what is that? Is that Catholic or is that this? Is that that? Catechism just means teaching. It just means a way to learn about, in this case, the foundations of the faith. So I encourage you to do that. It's from 930 to 1030 every Sunday morning. We're also having our congregation meeting Sunday, October 29th, immediately after service. And so if you're a voting member, we really ask you to stay. If you're a regular member, you can come as long as you bring food. Okay, so you come, you bring food, you can come and listen in. No, seriously, everyone's invited, but if you're only those that are members can actually vote. And that brings me to tell you that we are going to be opening up membership again very soon. 
Um, I'm going to be putting up a web page that if you are interested, okay, it's very non-committal first step of interest in becoming a member, I'll ask you to fill out that form and that will be available next week. But I do encourage you to think about becoming a member. Not only does this allow the Lord to use you in those areas where we vote congregationally, but it also identifies you to the leadership saying, hey, I want to be part of this fellowship. I want to be a sheep in the fold. Um, and so it gives the people that, uh, that, that oversee the fellowship a really good clear view on who that is. So we encourage you to do that. We're going to have a young adult fellowship next Saturday, October 7th in New Brunswick, the, um, East Brunswick. The address and details will be in the update this week, or you can see Mrs. Kemperman or Hubert Kemperman right there. They'll give you some more details. And finally, our Walk for Life is happening today at the Ocean Grove Pavilion at 1 o'clock. We invite you guys to come to that. All right, with that said, let's have our benediction. Let's please stay up, rise. Oh, and the, my wife just informed me that we have a sign-up sheet in the back for our fellowship lunch, which is next Sunday. So if you'd like, again, bring food. Um, you'd like to bring a dish, just let us know what it is so we don't have doubles. All right, so let's have the remainder of the congregation stand as well. Those in the front uh, don't see those in the back. But anyway, it's from 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And may the Lord bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you go out where you are right now and step out in faith for him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great week. Praise God from whom all